the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finman. We've got a great show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be speaking to Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody. He has written a book called Ethics of Our Fighters. And probably as the name indicates, we'll be talking about ethics and war and Judaism. Second half hour of the show will feature some insights into the portion of the week, which will be read in the synagogue, the portion of Teruma, which can be found in the book of Exodus, chapter 26 and following. Hopefully we'll have enough time to uh, tell over the Hasidic story, which we didn't get a chance to say last week, at the all the way at the end. We've got some really cool music throughout. Dr. Brody has written a book called Ethics of Our Fathers. Excuse me, epic, that's why I did this automatically. Ethics of Our Fighters, because the book is the name of a pun, because there is a tract which is 2,000 years old called Ethics of Our Fathers, which is studied quite extensively. And uh, Shlomo Brody has written a piece called Ethics of Our Fighters, which is, talks about, as you guessed, ethics of, of war and Jews. So how are you today, Shlomo? Great. Doing very well. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Why did you feel it necessary? I guess it's to every author. Why do you feel it necessary to write this book that you wrote, Ethics of Our Fighters? Yeah. No, the pun, of course, is uh, gets people. I sometimes mispronounce my own book as well. But I think that you know Jewish tradition has a lot of teachings about the ethics of proper behavior. And that's, of course, where the tractate in the Talmud comes from, of Ethics of Our Fathers. But we haven't had a lot to say about the ethics of how to fight war, and that's because we didn't have power for many, many centuries. And since really the 20th century, the issues have come up. They've become quite acute about military ethics. And I wanted to try to put together a comprehensive statement about what Judaism might say about this topic, which unfortunately is all too relevant given what's going on in Israel. 
Okay. So it, it's, I'm not going to say it's easier, but it's, it's sort of like it was, the mechanism is in place that if there's a new invention that wasn't discussed in biblical times or Talmudic times, like a refrigerator or an electric range or something like that, there were general principles that were laid down by Moses to the Jewish people when they're in the desert as to how to approach a certain specific detail, which they didn't know about yet. And then they just need to plug in these details into the general principles. Are there, is this the same thing with as far as uh, approaching uh, halacha, Jewish Jewish law and war? Shlomo Brody? Uh, not quite. It's not quite the same. I mean, I'll tell you, like in my, regular work for Ematai, which deals with end-of-life care dilemmas. So it's true modern medicine and modern technology gives us a lot of different new tools on how to treat people. But for centuries, we were dealing with end-of-life questions, and we laid down principles over the centuries. When it comes to the issue of military ethics, you do, of course, have some passages in the Torah from Moses, and you do have some passages in the Talmud. But after that, it's pretty skim. And so uh, what I try to show, however, is in spite of that fact, if you look hard and look well, you can derive a lot of underlying principles or values, which I do think the Jewish tradition provides. And it actually, I argue, gives us a great framework for thinking about some of these new dilemmas that we have today. So it's not quite the same as other issues like a refrigerator or whatnot, because we have a little bit of less precedent. But I still think there's actually a lot to work with here, and it's very inspiring. Okay, so let's let's talk about this a little bit. So the two wars which are discussed in the five books of Moses, for the most part, or the, the wars that which are discussed in the five books of Moses, are, say, like the war against the Moloch, the war against Midian, the conquest of Sichon and Og. In all of those instances, it was basically what would be described in modern times as war atrocities. They were wiping out in the war of Midian. They killed everybody. And Amalek was supposed to wipe out the last single person. No more Amalekite. Can we, I mean, an understanding that back then, the way things ran were, I mean, we're talking about war was, I'm going to chop your head off before you chop my head off. That if I didn't kill everybody, they're going to come back and kill me. So can we apply such theory to 21st century, Shlomo Rodi? I don't think so. I don't think that we'd apply the same type of ethos that was existed then and we'd apply that today. Then there's really what we call a total war strategy, which means you use all resources and there are very little restraints about how you fight war. I think in many ways, as Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook taught us and others as well, um, you know, warfare has changed for the better in certain respects, and our ethics have changed. Uh, and so, you know, I think that we can understand still, and even we see this in biblical passages also, and other rabbinic principles as well, that there is an importance to having some form of restraint on warfare. I do think, however, that the Bible teaches us something very important, and particularly with regard to vicious enemies or vicious countries like Amalek, which is that evil needs to be destroyed from the world. And unfortunately, I think the West, to certain respects, has lost sight of this fact that sometimes the um, types of enemies that we're fighting are so grave and they're so terrific people. The way we understood during World War II, how we understood how the Nazis 
had to be defeated, that there had to be absolute victory. And I think that in that respect, then, you know, the Bible is very, very important for our teaching to us today. But that doesn't mean we have to fight the same way as biblical warriors fought. And I think rabbis over the past century have asserted that repeatedly. Okay, very good for, for making that clarification. Okay, so let's jump. Um, the, half the book is, is history. I love history, and it's presented very well. I was riveted by the first half of the book, just the historical perspective of, of, uh, of the way you presented it. So let's, let's jump up to modern times. Uh, last week, we had the Consul General from Israel on the show. The title of the show was Fighting the Propaganda War in Gaza. It seems as though that when it comes to, to warfare, Jews are expected to be the underdog. We're expected to be the minority. There's a, there's a joke. It's a, I can stretch this joke out for 20 minutes, but just the, the punchline of the joke is there's a hijacking. And the hijackers find that one of the passengers is an Israeli, and they say, we're going to throw you off the plane, but you have one request. And he says, my one request is, is that I'm going to turn around and I'm going to bend over and I want you to kick me in the behind. So he said, okay. So they kick him in the behind. He rolls, as he's falling down, he pulls a gun out of his sock and shoots the, the, uh, the hijackers. So they said, that's very interesting that you did that, but why did you make them you know, kick you in the behind? He said, I didn't want to appear like the aggressor. So this is, this is sort of like the mindset that, that people have that we're, we're not supposed to win wars. We're not supposed to be the aggressor. We're not supposed to be, a, you know, somebody attacks us, okay, we defend ourselves. But to do what's happening now and how many times the, the, the Arab, uh, the Palestinian propaganda is that there's a, a genocide going on. Could you address this point, please, Shlomo Brody? Yeah, no, I, I think it's an important one. There's no doubt that we have a lot of obstacles when it comes to public relations. Some of which, you know, we could do a little bit better about by explaining what we're doing. But a lot of this just has to do with plain old anti-Semitism or some form of bias against Israel. And I think it's important for us to understand that uh, we need to build up our own moral fortitude and our own moral understanding of what we are doing and why we're doing it. And then recognize the fact that sometimes this means we're going to have to go on the offensive out of self-defense. I mean, this is probably one of the biggest lessons we're going to have to learn from October 7th which is that we knew that Hamas was a big threat for many, many you know, years. And we sort of, what we call in Israel, mowed the grass every now and then. We would go in there and cut back a little bit on some of the fighters. But we didn't try to systematically address the issue that, and the threat that Hamas was presenting. And I think part of that was because we felt that the international community was going to condemn us for that. And I think part of the moral lesson, let alone strategic lesson, that we can learn from here is that at times, the Jewish people, the state of Israel, need to understand that we need to be proactive about our defense. Self-defense is a moral imperative. It's not just a strategic matter. And uh, we have to recognize the fact that when we have a threat and it's bubbling against us, even if it's not imminent, but it's credible and grave, we have to address it. And I think we're going to be thinking long and hard about questions like how to deal with Hezbollah in northern Israel on the Lebanese border. And, of course, as well with Iran. Are we going to wait for Iran to have a nuclear bomb? I mean, we have to really think about these issues. And so I think we have to take a little stock of what happened here and recognize the fact that the world is going to judge us how they're going to judge us. But we need to do what it takes in order to protect our people. 
Okay, our guest today, again, is Shlomo Brody. He's written a book called Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality, which I think the terms war and morality might be mutually exclusive one with the other. Um, but so the the propaganda is being perpetrated is, is that there's too many little kids getting killed. Their hospitals are being destroyed. People, the refugees have no place to go. There is no humanitarian aid being allowed in as the Jews, as Israelis are trying to clear out Hamas in, in Gaza. So where do we draw, where's our moral compass? Where's our moral line that we, we're saying, well, we can do this, but any further than that is crossing the line. And no, we're not going to act like the rest of the world, which may have carpet bombed the entire Gaza at this point. Rabbi Brody. Yeah, no, I think war and morality are not contradictions. And part of what we have to figure out is how to understand what it is to morally fight a war. When it comes to issues of collateral damage and the unfortunate deaths of non-combatants, so we always have to ask ourselves, are we just going to war in the first place? And I think here it's readily obvious that Israel had to defend itself. And the next question is the means that are allowed in these cases. Israel is targeting combatants alone. It's very, very important. I try to argue this from a religious level as well, that it's important to only target combatants. However, as with all wars, non-combatants are going to be um, caught up in the crossfire sometimes. Sometimes because that's people they are very sympathetic, in this case with Hamas, sometimes not. But either way, we shouldn't be targeting them. But unfortunately, they're going to be harmed as well. But we have to look carefully and ask, why are they being harmed? In the theories of just war, it's always stressed that both sides have to try to minimize civilian casualties. In this case, Hamas is using human shields not just fighting within the people, but underneath the people. It's really unprecedented in many ways, and we have to keep on reiterating. The reason why so many Gazan civilians are being harmed is because Hamas is fighting in their midst. It's because Egypt won't open the border and accept refugees. It's because Hamas isn't doing what it's supposed to do by international law to prevent harm to its citizens. And so we have to keep on reiterating this. And unfortunately, it might take um, many, more, many, many more casualties in, or, until we can root out the Hamas fighters. But that's on, on a moral level on Hamas's uh, responsibility. So I think we just need to keep on stressing this point and stressing this to ourselves, while, of course, always keeping in mind all human beings were created in the image of God. We certainly are regretful of the fact that People who aren't directly attacking us are dying in this war. But nonetheless, we have a moral responsibility to protect our people. Okay, so Hamas is doing something wrong, but then we could argue and say, well, does that give the right to the IDF, the Israelis, in the name of self-defense, to also do something wrong, Shlomo Brody? We have the right to do something in self-defense, and it's not wrong. It is not wrong for us to fight and try to kill Hamas and their leaders and their terrorists and bring back our captives. That's a moral imperative. The fact that some of the Earth's civilians are also being harmed or killed in the process is not our moral responsibility. We should do what we can to try to minimize those casualties. And Israel's taking great steps to forewarn, to try to clear people out of the area. But when push comes to shove, we have a trumping moral responsibility to bring back our captives 
which somehow the world seems to forget, and also to uh, eliminate this threat from our borders. We cannot go on living this way with having someone on this border who has pledged to try to wipe out the entire state of Israel. Okay, understood. Now, in previous uh, attempts, and I, I kind of say it like tongue-in-cheek and roll my eyes at this point, that since 2014, every two years, I have somebody on from the Israeli consul, and I say to them, okay, so you're being attacked in from Gaza, and you're going to go in there, and you're going to do something, and then you don't do anything, you don't do enough, and then we come back in two years, and what's going to be in two years from now? But in all of those times, and it, I didn't hear it this time, maybe you, maybe you did, maybe I just wasn't listening because I've been telling people at this point that they should just turn off the news. It's, it's like too much to process. <laughs> the, the disproportional response, they're a, uh, a people that are, the, the Hamas is, is fighting with uh, homemade rockets that are made out of sewer pipes, and Israel is coming in with, uh, you know, targeted missiles and uh, electronic equipment and computerized this and laser technology that. So what about the disproportionate response? Is that is that moral? Is that ethical? Well, is I don't it? think we're being disproportionate. We're not being disproportionate. We have to understand when proportionality is used in the context of military ethics, it means the following. When you are attacking a military target and you know there's going to be collateral damage, you have to assess, is the gained military benefit proportionate to the potential damage that will happen to others? And each time Israel strikes, they have to take into that, you know, that equation into consideration, which is why there are times when Israel will cancel abort a shot or an army missile or a drone missile attack uh, because of the fact that there are too many civilians or children whoever might be around. But on many occasions, uh, it is proportionate in terms of given the military goal here. So the fact that, you know, this precisely you raised a good point. We've tried to do low-level wars, 10-day you know, uh, interventions, three-week battles, maybe two months, whoever it might be. And that hasn't failed. It hasn't served as a deterrent to Hamas. It hasn't dealt with the issue. So at this stage, Israel sort of left without no choice. And it has to do something more systematic to root out the threat from its border. That's a proportionate response. There's nothing disproportionate about the way Israel's behaving. Okay. So in, in your mind and your perspective, would you say that Israel's totally and completely righteous without fault? No, there are times when, of course, we make mistakes. There are times when uh, maybe we could look back. Of course, it's easy to be money, Monday morning quarterback and say maybe this wasn't necessary, this wasn't right. Uh, sure, that can happen. And when that happens, we need to do a certain amount of evaluation. Sometimes soldiers uh, err, and they need to be addressed as well if they make those mistakes. But I think overall, the overall picture here. Israel has a just cause to go to war and is fighting in a way in which we are trying to eliminate the threat while minimize civilian casualties. You know, if you look at the numbers and you say, let's say Hamas is right, right? The Gaza Medical Services who report to Hamas and say 25,000 have been killed so far. And let's say Israel's right. And they say 9,000 Hamas fighters have been killed. If you look at that proportion, you look at the ratio we're talking about here, it's about 1.8 non-combatants to one combatant, that is incredibly low. 
compared to what goes on when America was in Afghanistan, when the British were in Afghanistan or, or in Iraq, and many other wars as well. So we have to recognize the fact that war is unfortunate, war is tragic, but that doesn't mean war isn't moral. And that's what I want to stress in this book and what I really feel is important for people to understand. War and morality do go together. The fact that they're suffering doesn't mean that someone behaved in a moral way. And in this case, it means that Israel isn't behaving in a moral way as well. I think Israel is doing a very, very good job of trying to fight a difficult war in a moral manner. Okay, isn't it? Again, our guest today is Shlomo Brody, written a book called Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality. Jews are supposed to be better, though. Even even the nations of the world, all the goyim, no. Jews are supposed to be better. I mean, you had in 1981, you had a bunch of Christians that went and massacred a Lebanese-Palestinian refugee camp, and the Jews got blamed because Jews are supposed to be better. Aren't In this instance, aren't Jews also supposed to be better? better, not just think, okay, so in Afghanistan, it was like 2.1 ratio, and in, and in Gaza, it's 1.8, and so we're a little bit better, but so, but Jews are supposed to be like totally better, even in the eyes of the world, Shlomo Brody. I do think that we have a moral imperative to behave properly, and we should care, but, you know, in the case that we're dealing with here, we're dealing with a situation where I think we're doing as best as we can. And the moral imperative that we have is to behave properly. The fact that the world sometimes criticizes us is irrelevant to that point. And so I think we should not be obsessed with what everyone thinks about us. We should be obsessed about making sure that we live up to our own standards. Okay. I noticed also someone, somebody, um, pointed out to me that the, in some of the quote-unquote indiscriminate bombing that the IDF was doing, that there was a 700-year-old mosque which was destroyed, and I believe, in Gaza City. So 700 years is a long time for a building to be standing to just sort of look at, get blown up. And I'm wondering your, your take on that, Shlomo. Well, I don't know the specific cases, but if that mosque was being used for military purposes, if there were fighters that were hiding in there, if there were people that were hiding weapons there and shooting from there, then Hamas has then turned their mosque into a legitimate military target. They shouldn't be doing that. The whole purpose of the laws of war is to protect certain areas, like hospitals. But we know Hamas uses hospitals to hide there as well, to hide their weapons, hide their fighters, hide captives also. And if that's what they're using for the mosque, then Hamas bears responsibility for turning that mosque into a legitimate target. I mean, it would be absurd to think that if someone is shooting from a mosque and is threatening your soldiers or your people, you can't shoot at it because it's been there for 700 years. And part of the tragedy of this situation is what Hamas has done to the Palestinian society and to the Palestinian people. But that's their responsibility. That's their moral guilt, not ours. Okay, understood. Okay, so now you've written this book, Ethics of Our Fighters, and you hope that it becomes a New York Times bestseller. What do you want to take away from this 
book to be. Somebody reads the book, somebody who has no clue about the subject, they pick up the title because it's got an interesting cover or whatever it is. They may have heard the expression ethics of our fathers and say, oh, ethics of our fighters. Maybe there's something there. It's like some kind of something like that. What do you want, what do you want to take away from your book to be, Shlomo? I want them to understand that there's a sophisticated moral framework to thinking about these issues, that Judaism provides these tools that can inform ourselves, that can inform the world about us think about this, and that we should believe in this idea that war can be just, that war can be moral, and use that as a barometer for ourselves to judge our behavior. And it's my hope and prayer that, given the fact that it looks like we're going to be fighting for not a short amount of time, whether it's in Gaza or other places, that the book will help build up our moral fortitude. It will build up the tools that we need to have and under to understand when it's moral to fight war and when it's moral to fight how to fight war. And if the book can contribute to that in any different way, whether it's a bestseller or not, I would consider that to be a great contribution. Okay, that's wonderful. That's going to wrap it up for us. Again, our guest today was Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, wrote a book. Ethics of Our Fighters, A Jewish View on War and Morality, published by Magid Press and uh, available wherever you get your Jewish books from and Amazon and all those other places online. I want to thank you so much, Shlomo, for coming on and enlightening us, and uh, we wish you continued success. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Hey, Shulfinman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. Up for your listening pleasure, this is brand new. Um, I don't like generally some, the, the, sobs, the sobbing songs. But uh, Gad Albaz is able to pull it off. And that's what we're listening to. This is his brand new song. It's called Ima Yikar, My Dear Mother. And it's written as a song as a soldier who is in Gaza writing to his mother. And uh, it's really cool. I hope you like it. Let's listen. כל קטן מאיר שומישנה במטבח שלה צורף המלח על פצעיה שיר ישן מחזיר בפעימה שוב המחשבה שוב אותה דמעה מוכנה חור קטן שמתמלא בה רעידה קטנה
There's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813, that's 800-603-1813, or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Schultzman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. This song sounds really familiar, and I didn't look to see from last week, but it's got a different name. It's uh, it's called the Four String Klezmer Swing, and the group is called Joseph Joseph, which is an American quartet, which is why it's four string. And it's um, it sounds very much similar to the uh, the piece that we played last week, but it's a little different. Maybe you'll you'll let me know if if it uh, if it sounds like I played the same piece twice. So, but again, so this is Joseph Joseph, four-string klezmer swing. (laughs) 
And that was Four String Klezmer by Joseph Joseph. Up next, this is a brand new piece by an Israeli recording singer. I'm not sure how popular he is over there. Sometimes things get sent to me, and I'm just not familiar with the person, so I don't know if this is a first cut or if he's been around. I just haven't heard about him. His name is Davi Shapiro. The song is called Idan Hadash, which means a new, a new time period. Hospital get healthy. At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. 
There are no wait times that encompass healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week's portion is the portion of Teruma. It is found in the book of Exodus, chapter 26 and following. And discusses the building of the sanctuary, the portable sanctuary, the portable synagogue, whatever you would like to call it, the portable temple, which was built in the desert, which the Jews used as a communion tent, a way of communing with the Almighty. And it goes into great detail how it was made, and it takes up the better part of two plus portions I'm going to do something I have never done before, but simply because I'm just chomping at the bit to do this. There are many items in the temple, in this portion, which are mentioned how they were made. The the ark, the ark cover, the menorah, the table where they kept the bread, the, the incense altar, the earth altar, the copper altar, which later became the sacrificial altar in the temple, is discussed at a later time. But that's what I'm going to talk about because of something that I recently learned. So it comes out that when they would do a sacrifice, it says all over the place in the Talmud that they had to do two sprinklings, which were four. Two sprinklings that were four, meaning that they would stand at the south west, no, southeast corner, and they would throw some blood so that the blood went on the south side and the east side, and then it would move to the northeast corner. Yeah, they would move to the northeast corner, and they would do the same thing, and then they would move to the southwest corner, and then they would move to whatever, whichever corner was left at that point, the south southwest corner. And uh, um, northeast corner, then southwest corner. So that they managed to get the blood on the altar on all four sides. But they specifically, it talks about the corner. Because this is one of those things that fascinate me, which is why I'm so into it. How big is a corner when you think about it? Okay, if you look closely, it's one of those conundrums. Because... If you look closer and closer and closer and closer, you'll see that if you're pointing on the corner, that either you're pointing on this wall or you're pointing on that wall, but you're not really pointing on the corner. The point of tangency that makes up the corner is dimensionless, as is the case with any time you have a point in a geometric plane, or in this case, a cube. So what each side represents, they represent another aspect of godliness. The south side represents God's attribute of kindness. The north side represents God's attributes of severity. The east side represents God's intellect. And the south side represents God's supremacy, malchus. 
And there's a point of tangency which is immeasurable between each of those things, okay? From intellect to kindness, intellect to uh, severity, severity to dominion, kindness to dominion. There, in other words, there's a quantum leap there that in order to get to the next stage, you have to go out of yourself. What's the ultimate? Where did it end up? It ended up with dominion, which dominion, we're talking about a person's persona, refers to getting the job done. So what is it going to take to get the job done? We have an idea. I want to, I think I need to do this. What does it have to take is a person has to really, really nullify themselves, you might say. Go out of themselves to go and do the job. What was accomplished with the altar, the, the altar was really the bottom line. That was where the divine presence was felt in the temple. It says that in the first temple, there was a fire that descended from the heaven and consumed the sacrifices, which is in the shape of a lion. The second temple, which wasn't so ayayi, but it was still ayayi, was in the shape of a dog, crouching and consuming, looked like it was eating, the fire was eating the sacrifices. So it was a way of relating to the Almighty on a very personal letter, the word carbon meaning to come close. And in order to come close, where did a person have to do? They had to become a corner. They had to lose themselves entirely and accept upon themselves God in his infiniteness. Because if a point is nothing, well, what can contain infinity? Nothing. We are going to take a quick commercial break, and we will be right back with the Hasidic story that I know you've been waiting for since last week when I didn't ran out of time. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Go to my website, rabbifinman.com. You'll find a contact page. You'll contact me. I'll contact you. Everything will be right. You'll also find archived editions of the show. Like I made reference in the interview this week of a show from last week. And if you missed last week's show, well, there is a last week's show would definitely be considered like a precursor to really understanding this week's show. So I would suggest that you go back and you listen to last week's show. And if you don't remember, you heard last week's show, but at this point, maybe you didn't remember. Go back and listen again. It's it's still there. And in fact, there's still shows there from who knows how long ago. 
and you can go back and you can listen to them. It's it's a great thing. There's also ways, other ways in which we present Judaism in an interesting and, and entertaining way. There's also the import, very important donations page. Jewish Hour is only here because of listeners like you. We are somewhat supported by our sponsors, but we have always, since the 29 years that we're in on air, we're coming up to 30 years. Wow, it's going to be 30 years. March the 4th is our anniversary. I'm not sure what date March the 4th is, but since we didn't do, we're not doing live broadcasts anymore. So it's the first week of March. Marks our 30th year. That's an amazing thing. So, but anyway, so we've been on for 30 years. As we have always depended upon listeners like yourself. So go to it. Jewish Ferndale, you might want to mark it down on your calendar. March the 24th is Purim. So we're having a big Purim Suda with a concert featuring klezmer xylophone jazz player Lori Blank and accompanied by Marty Mandelbaum and... Uh, You'll see details soon. We'll be posting that soon to the website at Jewish Ferndale. So you can be able to reserve for there. But just mark it on your calendar for the time being right now. That's March the 24th, 5 o'clock, 5.30. We'll be McGiller reading, followed by a festive meal, followed by the concert. It'll be a real hoot. The story. Last week was marked the passing of Rabbi David Shochet. Rabbi David Shachet was the was the chief rabbi of Toronto since the 1960s. He had been there forever. Went there as I think he must have <laughs> he must have gone there as a kid. But brilliant mind. And in 1960, it was recognized that he had a brilliant mind. And the Rebbe sent him to Toronto, where he stayed and was the chief rabbi. And he eventually became like one of the chief rabbis of the entire Lubavitch community worldwide. So tremendous loss as far as that. So, but he tells a story of something that happened in the early '60s, and if you want the full details of him telling it, I think you can go on Chabad.org and type in uh, David Shachet S H O C H A C H E T, and it'll come up. He's a there's not that many videos of him telling stories. So. The story that he tells is that the Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, that he was in, in Buffalo in the early 60s, and uh, he no, he was in Toronto in the early 60s, and he got asked to do a program in Buffalo. Buffalo at that time did not have a Chabad presence per se as a Chabad house. They may have had a day school, which was uh, running and doing different things in the community. So they brought in this speaker, this uh, this esteemed rabbi, and he didn't want to do it. Okay, I don't know if they had bridges that went back and forth at that time. Maybe it was a ferry that 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 he had to use. I, don't, I have no idea what the logistics was, but to him it was just a big bother. And he didn't want to do it. So, But he was convinced, write the Rebbe to see if you should do it. Maybe it's not such a waste of time. So he wrote the Rebbe, and the Rebbe, Lubavitcher Rebbe, and the Rebbe said it's for sure a good thing. And since there will be non-Jews present... You should tell. You should talk about tzedakah, giving charity, because non-Jews also have to give charity. So I said, okay, fine. So he's there, and in the middle of it, he told the story that in the city, I don't remember the name of the city, um, city in Germany, there was a store owner, very wealthy store owner, who was an absolute miser. 
anybody would come into the story, into the store, would for a donation, for whatever the cause was, he would blanketly say, no, I'm not giving you a penny. And he never gave anybody. He passed away. And the burial society said, what kind of person was this? He never gave money. So we're burying him in the cemetery way in the back, not in a place of honor. A couple weeks go by, and uh, the widows and poor people start coming to the rabbi saying that all of a sudden the butcher and the baker is not giving them, not giving them food. So the rabbi calls the butcher and he says, "What's going on over here?" So he said, "Since you're 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 asking me, you're you're, you're putting in." I says, "We were sworn to sweet secrecy that the miser who you call the miser was actually paying the bill for all those people, quietly, incandescently, clandestinely, nobody knew, and he made us swear not to tell anybody because he didn't want anybody to know." So the rabbi said, "That's amazing." And he left, the rabbi left in his will the, that he wanted to be buried next to this miser who wasn't a miser. Okay. After Rabbi Shochet got through delivering his speech, so there was a Catholic priest in the audience who came up to him and said, could you, could you tell me that story again? And he said, he, Rabbi Shochet was born in, in Antwerp and English was a second language. And his whole life he spoke with a, a very heavy accent. And he said, but do you going to understand my English any better the second time I say the story? So he said, no, please come to, my, come to my hotel room and tell me the story again. So he said, okay, no, I'm in Buffalo anyway. Was, I think they were in the same hotel or whatever it was. So he went and he, they came to the priest's room and the priest sat him down. He said, okay, tell me the story. He told him the story again, every detail. And the priest said, it's amazing. Could you tell me the story one more time? So now Rabbi Shochet thinks that this guy's crazy. What do you need to hear? He says, you know, he even said to him, you know the story by heart already. He said, no, 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 please, Rabbi, tell me one more time. So he told it one more time. So he said, um, he asked, who was the rabbi? So he says, the rabbi of the city at that time was known as the Tosis Yomtev, Rabbi Yomtev Lipman Heller. Um, very popular commentary on the Mishnah, also an erudite scholar. And he said, I think the grandfather, I think the story in that, the, the miser in that story was my grandfather. So Rabbi Shafat says to him, how's it possible? You're a Catholic priest. So he said, when I was 10 years old, my mother got very sick and she told me this a story about her grandfather. And she said, you're Jewish, and you should know that this is your legacy. So she says, I think, I think, this is my, I think that was my grandfather. Okay, we're from that city, and I think this is, this is the story. Fine. He forgot about it. Thank you very much. He went back to Toronto, lived happily ever after. And he went a couple of years later. Uh, I think after the 67 war, so it's like 1968, maybe late 1967, after it was now possible for Jews to go to the temple, the temple wall, the, the Western wall. And uh, Rabbi Shochet is praying at the Western wall and he hears a voice, Rabbi Shochet, 
And he turns around and he sees a guy, he's dressed like a breast lover chassid with a big hat, a big beard, long payas, a funny coat, the whole business. And he, Darba Shachat said, do I know you? And he says, you probably remember me as a Catholic priest at a hotel room in Buffalo. And he said, really, what? He said, yeah, I'm Jewish and I found out about my roots and I gave up the whole thing. I became moved to Israel and I'm now a Bratzlav said, because that person was my grandfather. And Rabbi Shachat said, and Rabbi Heller was my grandfather. And that's the story. And that's the show. And we hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to educate you a bit. We hope to see you back again next week. Take care. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.